0: Stories we take up this week include what the Russia invasion means for U.S. corporations, why subculture audits are so critical, the KT Corp FCPA settlement, all these and much more on This Week in FCPA, the Russia Invades edition, all on the Compliance Podcast Network hope you will check out one of the latest additions to the Compliance Podcast Network, Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial, where, with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the case, I take a look at the issues around the trial, the witnesses, and the outcome. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Mr. Monitors, himself, Jay Rosen. For a somewhat somber opening for this week in FCPA, episode 292, for the week ending February 25, 2022, the Russia Invades edition. We are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in this edition. Jay, what
1: say you? Uh, I say I'm really disheartened and disgusted as what's happening in the world out there. So it gives me a little solace to take a look at the top ethics and compliance stories for the week. So let's dive right in. So, of course, Jay, our lead story is the uh, Russian invasion, and there's been a
0: fair amount of political commentary that we won't uh, take up in this podcast. But there's some things from the world of compliance that I really want to highlight for our listeners. Uh, Number one, Michael Peregrine, a lawyer in Chicago, who, as a quick aside, is a huge Chicago White Sox fan. Um, is uh, and still remembers when they beat the Astros in 2005 in the World Series. He wrote a really interesting piece in Forbes.com about what the Russian invasion could mean for corporate governance. And I thought it was really prescient, and now even more prescient that he wrote it. But uh, he, he really pointed out that change is not the only constant, Jay. Change is ubiquitous. And what really what we've seen since the uh, start of the pandemic is just one body blow after another literally across the globe. I mean, uh, this, this a little earlier, more than a year ago, we had the uh, riot and insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, then we had uh, GameStop and Robin Hood, uh, and that was just the first month in 2021. Well, now the second month, we've got the first major land war in Europe since World War II, at least invasion, and um, that's that's just not going to stop. And uh, companies have to be prepared. And and we we will talk about a little bit of that and a little bit more in this podcast. But uh, Michael says boards need to start thinking about long term contingency plans, actually as strategic planning. Um, that really leads me to a two part podcast series. That I recorded last week with Matt Silverman. Matt's the uh, Director of Trade Compliance at VIAVI. And in this two-part series, Matt uh, looked at what potential sanctions could be levied against Russia in part one. And then part two is what you can do uh, in response in, in helping to prepare your company. Uh, Part one has already dropped, and part two will drop by the time this podcast posts. So uh, I hope you will check it out. I also wrote a blog post tomorrow on uh, potential sanctions and how to deal with those potential sanctions because it's going to be a pretty pretty wild ride in the trade compliance world. But, Jay, it's not just trade compliance. It's things like cyber, cyber protection, cybersecurity. It's things like anti-money laundering. Uh, We wouldn't be surprised to see an uptick in corruption around this. Obviously, uh, Russia uh, apparently has overrun the Chernobyl facility. What does that mean for the environmental uh, folks out there? All really open questions. Um, We've also linked to um, Jacqueline Jaeger in Compliance Week, also talked about the sanctions. So, um, And then I recorded another podcast. To this afternoon earlier where we talked about, well, what about your workforce, Jay? What if your workforce is in Russia? What about your if your workforce is in in the Ukraine? Well, what about those regions? What about Eastern Europe? Uh, what are you going to do if the war expands? What are you going to do if Russia moves into Poland? What are you going to do if Poland moves into the Ukraine? Uh, what happens if NATO responds? Uh, hopefully we we'll won't get to all that, but those are things that you have to think about. And then is any of your uh, company infrastructure uh, going through either one of those two places? We had not even got to supply chain yet, um, which, of course, uh, there will be huge disruptions to the supply chain. And, Jay, I don't know how often you check your portfolio, but uh, I was looking at the stock market today, and um, about 11 a.m., i lost 5% of my overall <laughs> value Uh, Now, it's made a comeback, but uh, that kind of volatility in the market to have a 5% swing in the uh, Dow Jones in one day is um, really scary. And it's not just scary for me. It's scary for a lot of people, whether they be retired on fixed income or, you know, just regular investors. And I'm sure the same is true for hedge funds, folks. So um, a lot to think about, a lot to prepare for. And the message, let me circle back to Michael's message that I started with, is this is the way it's going to be. It's going to be this way in climate. It's going to be this way in regulation. It's going to be this way in geopolitical politics. Uh, We have the Great Resignation underway, which is testing uh, higher talent management and acquisition. So um, boards need to be more involved. Compliance officers need to be more involved. Matt articulated, Mount Silverman articulated very well why trade compliance uh, directors need to be involved and uh, companies need to start really thinking about not simply business resilience, but, you know, what are you going to do tomorrow? What's your plan to do business tomorrow? So it's it's business as usual. So um, I, I would say our, our hearts go out to those in the Ukraine I've got lots of friends in the compliance community there, and I've heard from some of them today, and they're relatively safe at this point, but uh, it's certainly a disheartening event. What uh, What about from your perspective?
1: Um, I just have to echo everything you've said, Tom, and um, there are people on LinkedIn, and um, if there's any way that you can help people over there, uh, please do what we can. We need more than thoughts and wishes. Uh, we need the governments of the world to really get together and get on the same page. And thus far, it seems that they're doing that okay. Uh, I'd like to go to my first story of the day. This comes to us from the FCPA blog, from our good friend Vera Sharapunova, And Vera takes a look at three key concepts of subcultural audits. In a previous post, Vera looked at the drivers behind behavioral revolution. Now happening in banks. Diving deeper into this, she unpacks what's behind the subculture audits concept and how these are different from more effective and more effective than cultural assessment surveys we're mostly familiar with. Why look at culture now? The COVID-19 outbreak was a massive culture shock for our organizations. Job and career migration followed by initial inertia after the lockdowns job and career migration accelerated in 2021, and it's likely to continue at this point in 2022. The drivers behind it speak to questions at the very heart of workplace culture. Here are the three learnings from behavioral teams and the financial sector. Get granular. When a certain behavior needs to be changed, it's critical to be specific. The same applies to managing culture. A very targeted approach can be more beneficial then looking at the whole organization with a holistic culture assessment. Number two, use multiple methods. Organizational culture has a complex structure that exists at both tangible and intangible levels. The tangible elements include policies, processes, technology, and observable behavior. The intangibles are shared beliefs and values, rationalizations, perceptions, underlying assumptions that determine how things get done. Behavioral scientists use multiple methods to look at tangible and intangible elements. Mixed methods provide better insight, reveal any misalignment between the elements, and helps minimize in inherent limitations of every single method. Finally, myths are not the tr- rather surveys are not the truth. Culture and engagement surveys are valuable instruments, yet they are insufficient. Many behavioral risks are not related to the things that you can measure with a survey. Also, surveys are affected by the culture of people answering them are embedded in. As ethical culture worsens, survey becomes less reliable due to pressures and the normalization of poor behavior. That said, surveys help generalize observations to larger populations. But it's essential to keep in mind that a survey is just a data set. That needs to be understood with other data sets. So, again, use mixed methods, compare, and triangulate. Tom, why don't you tell us about the KT Corp settling their FCPA enforcement action?
0: Sure, Jay. We had a uh, enforcement action announced, and that, of course, as you correctly noted, was the KT Corp. Lots of commentary on it. Uh, I wrote a three-part blog post series. Mike Volkoff wrote a three-part blog post series. Matt Kelly wrote on it. And Matt and I podcasted on it in this week's Compliance Into the Weeds. Lots of interesting things in this case, Jay. Uh, First and foremost was um, we returned to the future with uh, bribes, uh, bags of cash. We hadn't seen cash in a long time in uh, bribery schemes. But uh, the CEO of the company was at the head of uh, one of the bribery schemes, and he actually gave out bonuses, fake bonuses, to his, his cronies on the senior exec level. They cashed those bonuses and gave them back to him as cash, and they kept the cash in the, uh, in the company safe, and he just distributed that out to his uh, political cronies. So we hadn't seen cash in a long time. Then when that's, that scheme got caught and brought down, they moved to... Uh, Purchasing gift cards, except the vendor just delivered the equivalent in cash, less a commission. And I knew you would really appreciate that, you know, that part being the the businessman you are, Jay. But he kept a commission while delivering cash. It's not in bags, though, in brown envelopes. So we hadn't seen that in a while. Number two was there was a separate robbery scheme in uh, Vietnam. This first robbery scheme was in uh, Korea. The second bribery scheme was in Vietnam, and the thing that uh, was intriguing to me, and every compliance practitioner needs to review their overall compliance program, uh, the company was involved in a consortium to bid on a project from the Vietnamese government. It was not a joint venture. It uh, It was a different form of business venture, and it reminds us all that business ventures present risks and present difficulties from the compliance perspective. It doesn't have to be a joint venture. It doesn't have to be a legally binding partnership. So that was the third one, or second one, rather. And the third was the uh, overall culture of the company. Obviously, when you have the CEO directing uh, or or putting together the pot of money to pay bribes, you have a corrupt culture, and it literally to the top. So... um, uh, lots of interesting things, uh, relatively small, but some, some pretty interesting details. So check out uh, any of those sites, uh, some good stuff. Jay, uh, we have a national cryptocurrency
1: enforcement team. What is that and what does it mean? Well, thanks for asking, Tom. we got a couple of related articles here. First off, there's one from Corporate Compliance Insight, and it's from a couple of attorneys at Morgan Lewis. They're Kathleen McDermott and Mark Kratowski and they're taking a look at DOJ's civil cyber fraud initiative could find healthcare companies exposed on multiple fronts. The new civil cyber fraud initiative of the US Department of Justice uses the punitive false claims act, the FCA, and its whistleblower provisions for some important legal and risk management considerations for the health industry. Because enforcement will initially occur largely through civil investigations applying the FCA in the broadest possible way, healthcare organizations should undertake a priority assessment of their cybersecurity status to ensure that practices can withstand hacks, whistleblowers, and government scrutiny. Cybersecurity is an urgent priority for the Biden administration. U.S. President Joseph Biden issued an executive order on May 12 of 2021 to improve and modernize the nation's cybersecurity, noting that recent cybersecurity incidents commonly demonstrated insufficient cybersecurity defenses. The DOJ's new civil cyber fraud initiative has important goals. In the crosshairs of the initiative are government contractors and grant recipients that knowingly provide deficient cybersecurity products and services, knowingly misrepresent their cybersecurity practices and protocols, or knowingly violate obligations to monitor and report cybersecurity incidents. For the healthcare industry, the implications of the initiative ...should be broadly assessed, FCP, FCA, keep doing that, cyber fraud exposure is now a parallel exposure to Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, and state laws. Directly impacted are healthcare contractors, whether governed by the Federal Acquisition Regulations, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, and other agency procurements. Call to whistleblowers with inside expert cyber knowledge. In rolling out the cyber fraud initiative, DOJ officials highlighted the important role that whistleblowers play. So what can we do now? Debating whether it's a good idea to use the FCA to modernize cybersecurity will make for lots of legal and policy arguments. Maybe the initiative will fizzle if the whistleblower tips and actions do not materialize. For now, healthcare organizations should focus pragmatically on why cybersecurity is so critical. Here are some steps that they can take in the interim. Assess and update cybersecurity response plan. Update the compliance disclosure program to expressly include IT and cyber issues. Assess and update relevant contracts with suppliers and vendors to account for FCA cyber exposure, and finally assess and update insurance policies to anticipate broader and different investigations moving forward. Next, we have an article from the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. This comes to us from David Smogala, and it says the Justice Department names crypto enforcement leader. Last Thursday, the DOJ announced, and I'll apologize for butchering, Yoon Jung Choi, a national prospector known for pursuing cyber criminals, will be the first director of the NCET, which is the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team. Ms. Choi had been a senior counsel to Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco since April. Before that, she spent nine years at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the SDNY, where she was an assistant U.S. attorney and a cybercrime coordinator focused on network intrusions, digital currencies, the so-called dark web and national security investigations. She served as lead prosecutor in a number of high-profile cases, including a hack of the J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and other financial institutions by transnational organizations and the operation of an unlicensed virtual currency exchange, Coin.mx, the Justice Department said. Ms. Choi said in a statement to the D- that the DOJ has been at the forefront of investigating and prosecuting crimes involving digital currencies since their inceptions, adding that the NCET will play a pivotal role in ensuring that as the technology surrounding digital assets grows and evolves, the department in turn accelerates and expands its efforts to p- combat their illicit abuse by the criminals of all kind. Tom? Tell us how Credit Suisse facilitated crime, corruption, and dictators.
0: Well, uh, we had another major leak of documents, this time from Credit Suisse. So we have the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, now we have the, and of course the Pandora Papers, now we have the Credit Suisse Papers. And it paints just a terrible picture of a bank who's doing business with all of those folks you named, Jay, criminals, criminals dictators, money launderers, drug dealers. Uh, Now, uh, the only saving grace is most of these accounts uh, or the information ended in the middle part of last decade, so they're not active accounts, at least not most of them. But uh, in addition to the dictators and uh, criminals, many uh, money launderers from corruption, bribery and corruption, also hid their money at Credit Suisse, and this included... Uh, I think I counted 27 people associated with a Petrovici scandal, or nearly 300 million dollars in um, uh, money that was uh, laundered through or bank p- parked rather at uh, Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse, of course, uh, decried the uh, uh, journalist expose and said that it was really just, you know, they were out to embarrass Credit Suisse. We may have done bad things in the past, but we're really a good guy now. Well, they ain't good guys now. They weren't good guys then, and they continue just to uh, have one piece of information. They've recently had to can two chief executives. They're in criminal trial in Switzerland uh, right now for uh, money laundering and other charges. And it's always been illegal in Switzerland to uh, bank uh, money for criminals, although that was not strictly enforced over the years. So... um, More uh, bad news for Credit Suisse, it's unclear what, if any, the sanctions will be, whether this violates the deferred prosecution agreement they entered into with the Department of Justice or any agreements with the Swiss authorities, but certainly a black eye for Credit Suisse, a black eye for the Swiss banking industry, and uh, we would expect more of these types of uh, releases, Jay. So Jay, um, you and I have talked about diversity and DEI on this podcast a fair number of times, but... I had not thought of diversity in terms of your internal investigation team. I know AMI doesn't do internal investigations, uh, but you have a fair amount of diversity, so I thought this would be a great one for you to to cover because the article really uh, indicates that uh, diversity is is a plus for investigative teams, and, and maybe you might expand on that to why AMI
1: thinks diversity is a plus in the monitorship realm. Yeah, that's a great point, Tom. Uh, this article comes to us from uh, NYU's program on corporate compliance enforcement. It's specifically from the Compliance and Enforcement blog. It's from a couple of attorneys at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, Karen Portlock and Jabari Julian. Recent years have seen an uptick in corporate internal investigations of discrimination, harassment on the basis of protected characteristics and increased attention to corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion policies and practices. When companies look for teams to investigate these issues, they should prioritize diverse teams, which perform better than homogenous ones in core investigation functions, and they drive better and more realistic uh, results for clients. As diversity in companies has grown, so too has the need for diverse investigative teams. Diversity at all levels of the corporate workforce continues to grow. Boards of directors and corporate officers are diversifying in regards to gender, social class, nationality, and race and ethnicity, and the percentage of directors who are racial minorities are at an all-time high. In recent years, numerous companies have launched initiatives to further accelerate the diversification of their staff, and this trend looks to continue. As companies work to improve diversity within their ranks, they are increasingly faced with difficult and sensitive questions about workplace conduct. Diverse teams can conduct more thorough interviews. These types of serious allegations require thorough and comprehensive review. And when the time for such an investigation comes, clients should give careful consideration to the composition of the investigative team and cognizant of the unique benefits that diversity confers. As just one example, research suggests that informational interviews in the physician-patient context are more successful and therefore lead to better outcomes when there is a positive relationship between the physician and patient. In a similar vein, in 2016, a report jointly published by the Department of Justice and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission noted that benefits of diversity and relationships between law enforcement officers and community members. As in these contexts, building a rapport with an interviewee in order to elicit sensitive information is critical to success for internal investigations. Finally. Diverse teams offer significant benefits in solving problems in decision-making. Another core task of an investigative team is to solve complex problems that are, and arrive at thorough, well-reasoned conclusions. More granularly, diverse teams by their very nature incorporate a wide variety of perspectives. Those perspectives generate different interpretations of the facts and lead to more collective problem solving and ultimately cause the team to arrive at more accurate conclusions. The inherent cognitive benefits of diversity expand beyond jury deliberations. Researchers have explained how people who are different from one another bring out unique information and experiences to bear on the task at hand, and that influx of information can lead to innovation. Here are some key takeaways. The benefits of a diverse team are abundant. In the context of internal investigations, diverse teams are best positioned to collect more detailed and reliable answers from witnesses and are more likely to reach a correct and verifiable outcome. Diverse teams are also better equipped to tackle issues that arise during the course of an investigation effectively and creatively. creatively. For optimal results, clients should choose diverse investigative teams to handle their most sensitive inquiries. Tom, it's now the time for us to check in with our resident ESG guru. What is on Lawrence Heim's mind this week?
0: We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more this week in FCPA.
1: Jay, in a really interesting blog post, Lawrence looks
0: at small cap directors and officers ESG liabilities, and I was heartened by his opening remarks, and, and he's reviewing an article by his colleague, John Jennings, Jenkins rather, who wrote about board ESG risk and the corporatecompliance.net. And uh, Lawrence's take is that the Caremark line of decisions from the Delaware Supreme Court uh, have ex- expanded uh, board risk and that the article posits that this expansion of board risk could also go to ESG. And the uh, if a shareholders or a group of shareholders file suit over some ESG issue uh, against the board, uh, it could uh, be held to a Caremark-type uh, standard where they have to not simply have an ESG program, but actually oversee and manage it. So that was sort of the uh, interesting, one One interesting part. There were a couple of other points that uh, the article raised where risks are ignored by directors and officers at small cap companies. One is reputational risk. A second is adequate DNO coverage, and then uh, adequate DNO indemnification. So from the insurance risk management perspective, you might want to look at those issues if you're a board member. And really, uh, as always, Lawrence really sums it up quite well with the, his what this means section. And he really sees ESG risks uh, certainly is becoming more important, no surprise there. But the board's role, and that if a board doesn't get out and actively manage their ESG, there could be potential exposure. So, kind of an interesting expansion of what you and I talk about—a fairmont J, which is Caremark and its uh, application to compliance. But Lawrence sees that potentially that application could be to uh, small cap uh, companies uh, as well, and, and there's no reason it's limited to small cap. It really could be all companies. So, Jay, next up, uh, what are, are or will be some of the global trends in corporate governance for 2022?
1: Well, this is uh, an appropriately placed article after the last one in speaking about ESG. Um, for This comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. The authors are Richard Fields, Rusty O'Kelly III, and Laura Sanderson. For the seventh consecutive year, Russell Reynolds Associates interviewed global institutional and activist investors, pension fund managers, proxy advisors, and other corporate governance professionals to identify corporate governance trends that will impact boards and directors in 2022 and beyond. This year, they spoke to over 50 experts from major investors, regulators, advisors, and advocates. And here are the global trends predicted for 2022. In the last few years, some governance observers and board members have predicted or hoped that shareholders and other stakeholders' attention to these topics would wane, but the experts interviewed could not have been more clearer. These topics are more important than ever, and here are four trends. More assertive, demanding investors who feel empowered to demand action and disclosure on growing numbers of topics, And with failure to meet these demands, more likely than ever to vote against companies and individual directors at annual shareholder meetings. Number two, higher standards for corporate attention to the climate. As the materiality of climate change to individual businesses and society writ large is beyond question. As Larry Fink wrote in BlackRock's 2022 letter to CEOs, Most stakeholders now expect companies to play a role in decarbonizing the global economy. Enhanced board effectiveness practices become the norm as investors and other stakeholders realize that good composition, refreshment, and evaluation practices result in improved corporate performance and decreased risk exposure. And finally, urgency regarding equity and diversity initiatives, both in the enterprise and the boardroom, as evidence amounts that diverse organizations outperform others and stakeholders demand progress without delay. Russell Reynolds Associates believes that the more will take two forms in 2022. Not only will there be increased activity in each of these areas, board taking action, new regulations coming into play, etc., but there will also be more attention paid to all of these areas by shareholders and stakeholders alike. The level of scrutiny and public oversight of board and directors from 2022 and onward will increase beyond anything directors have experienced before. In the show notes, we link to the entire report, which specifically looks at trends in Australia, Brazil, Canada, the EU, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, and the the UK and the US. So, Tom, we're almost at your last article. Why don't you tell us what Roger Ng's trial is in danger of collapse? Jay, uh, I'm going to have to put on my recovering trial lawyer hat
0: here because this is just one of the worst, most inexcusable mistakes that can happen in any phase of, a tri- any phase of litigation, but most particularly at trial. And what happened was uh, the prosecution star witness is Timothy Leisner, uh, Roger Ng's former boss and colleague at Goldman Sachs, who's pled guilty and is awaiting sentencing. And the defense sent over a request for documents relating to Timothy Leisner, Leisner. And somehow, 15,500 of do- documents relating to Timothy Lizer were not produced to the defense. Now, uh, that's pretty egregious conduct. And if that happens during discovery, you're probably going to be sanctioned. But for that to happen in a trial and the documents just appear, we just found them, uh, that's beyond the pale. And... The uh, where they were in the case was near the end of Leisner's direct testimony, meaning the prosecution questioning him and he was about to be cross-examined. So the judge has suspended the trial pending the defense's review of these 15,500 documents. Even the, the prosecution didn't oppose uh, the motion and said it was an egregious error. Uh, I have been on both sides of this at trial. One time I had a corporate representative literally walk into the courtroom with a box of documents. He said, Oh, Tom, I just found these. I'm like, okay, let me, uh, you just sit here. I'm going to go back and talk to the judge for a moment. Um, And it was not pretty. Uh, And I have to say the judge was incredibly professional and um, you know, he knew the situation I was in. Nevertheless, that is an inexcusable error by the prosecution and how this happened Obviously, we may never find out. The bottom line is this case is now in serious jeopardy of being um, declared a mistrial. And if I were the judge, that's what I'd do. I mean, I would not tolerate this. In addition to not producing the documents... It makes for a completely unfair trial. Whatever you think of Roger Ng, whatever you think of Goldman and what they did, whatever you think of 1MDB, a man gets his day in court, and he gets his day in court under the rules of civil procedure and under the rules of evidence, and he didn't get that. And uh, I hope the judge dismisses the case and makes the government start all over again um, and and assess cost uh, for the defense up to this point. That's that's just an inexcusable error. Uh, I don't know if you're taught that in first year of law school, but you're certainly taught that the first month you're in private practice. Um, you look for every document and you produce it, particularly when it's obviously as relevant as it gets. So um, Leisner's testimony was, was pretty damning, but it was only the direct testimony. So we don't know how he's going to handle cross-examination. It turned out he was a serial bigamist. He was married to multiple women at the same time, more than once. Uh, whether the jury believes him or not, obviously it's going to be problematic, and we don't know what's in these documents. So, a huge—I cannot over 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 inflate how huge an error this is. Wish the prosecution hadn't done it, but they did, and uh, they deserve to be sanctioned for it. Uh, really, up to the to the full extent of what the judge feels is appropriate, and. And this is within the discretion of the court. So, huge error by the DOJ in this case. This is obviously one of the <clears throat> biggest profile FCPA trials we've had in quite some time. And I just, when I read that, I could not believe it. Um, so, uh, that's where we are with uh, Roger Ng. Um, on a lighter note, can the FCPA used, be used to fight the demand side of bribery, Jay?
1: This is a real interesting article. Uh, it's written by Professor Matthew Stevenson from Harvard, and it appears in his global anti corruption blog, GAB. As you know, logs, laws like the US FCPA target what is sometimes referred to as supply side unquote, of transnational bribery, bribery transactions. The firms and individuals have offered or paid bribes to foreign officials in order to secure a business advantage. But what about the demand side? All too often, government officials who demand or receive these bribes escaped accountability, even when the bribe-paying firms are forced to pay substantial penalties for FCPA violations. Sometimes the explanation is political. The public officials involved are sufficiently powerful and well-connected to escape domestic accountability in their own countries, even when the misconduct is known. That's a big problem, and one that statutes are designed to address. But there's other reason that demand-side governments often fail to hold their own officials accountable, a lack of capacity and, is as associated, lack of evidence. In a great many cases, even when bribe-paying firms settle an FCPA matter with the U.S. government and in doing so admit the certain facts and provides evidence about the misconduct of the DOJ, the demand-side country government does not receive sufficient evidence to identify, let alone prosecute, the corrupt officials involved. The U.S. government can and should fix this problem. Doing so would not require new legislation Rather, it could be accomplished through a straightforward and easily implementable change in DOJ policy. The policy change could be modeled after the so-called Yates Memo issued in 2015 by then Attorney General. Guess what? Sally Yates. That's why it's the Yates Memo. The Yates Memo was intended to increase the prosecution of individual corporate officers and employees responsible for corporate crimes. Among other things, the Yates Memo required that in order for a corporation to receive credit for fully cooperating with the DOJ investigation, the corporation must disclose to DOJ all individuals involved or responsible for the misconduct. For this to work, Matthew is advocating a policy that would go something like this. First, DOJ should clarify that pursuant to the policy initially established by the Yates Memo, corporations seeking cooperation credit in settling FCPA matters must disclose to the DOJ the identities of the foreign public officials who received the bribes second DOJ should adopt and announce a presumption that any information and evidence supplied by the corporation regarding a bribe taking foreign official will be turned over to the appropriate law enforcement agencies in that official's home company country other and finally The DOJ should adopt several exceptions or qualifications to the general presumption that information on bribe-taking foreign officials will be shared with their home country law enforcement agencies. Other refinements and modifications would most likely be required to make the policy work. But the basic gist should be clear. Under a policy along the lines sketched out above, when a company subject to the U.S. FCPA jurisdiction gets caught, the subsequent investigation should involve figuring out not only which company employees were culpable, but which also which foreign officials also received bribes. If the bribe-paying companies and the DOJ provide that evidence, then prosecutions of the demand side of transnational bribery transactions are much more likely to be effective, and foreign public officials are more likely to think twice before they request or accept a bribe from a multinational company that follows under FCPA jurisdiction. So it seems like quite a clean prescription for how this would work. The question is, is would there be any heat on those companies who were having the demand side? Would there be any pressure for them to settle? Tom, we've got a great lineup of podcasts and uh, different things. Why don't you tell us about... The cornucopia of podcasts we've had in the week that's gone by.
0: Sure, Jay. Uh, this week we had part four of the Compliance Life with Ellen Smith. Ellen was a longtime in-house trade compliance specialist, and she started her own compliance consul- uh, trade compliance consulting firm in the midst of the pandemic. So kudos for um, doing that. And uh, we talk about. That move and how she's used her in-house experience in her consulting. As I mentioned, I do. I've done a great two-part podcast series with Matt Silverman on uh, Russia sanctions. Uh, Matt is really. Um, uh, um, up on this, and he's really got a lot of great advice, uh, both in parts one and part two. Gwen Hassan over on her podcast, Hidden Traffic, has Jeff Bond. Jeff's with the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery, and they take a look at a really interesting topic that I've touched on with a few people, uh, which is the impact of climate change on modern slavery. Obviously, climate change has led to uh, great Migration, what does that meant for modern slavery? So, a uh, uh, really interesting podcast. Gwen's uh, new podcast or new to the Compliance Podcast Network and indeed the Compliance World has been a great addition. So, check out Gwen on Hidden Traffic and Mr. Monitors himself, former Mr. Screenwriter, member of the Screenwriters Guild. This one's for you. Star Wars, the science of Star Wars. I did a five-part series on the science of Star Wars with Ben Lockman. Ben is probably one of the three smartest people I've ever met in my life. In addition to having a PhD in uh, neurobiology, he has one in astrophysics, his first one, as he says. Well, uh, we explored astrophysics in this podcast series, and literally, Jay, it was uh, just hot take after hot take. Me throwing questions at him, no preparation, and he handled them all. And it was great fun. So we got to talk about Star Wars. In episode one, we talked about traveling in hyperspace. Episode two, fighting with lightsabers. Yes, I still have a lightsaber on my uh, on my bookshelf. Actually, I have two. So. Um, In, of course, addition to the Millennium Falcon and other selected Star Wars memorabilia. In Episode 3, Mechanical Prosthetics. In Episode 4, Cyborgs and Robots, i.e. Darth Vader versus R2-D2 and C-3PO. And the final episode is The Death Star. It was a ton of fun. If you're into Star Wars at all, this is a podcast series for you. Uh, I generally describe... Some scene, and then Ben goes into the Ben thing on astrophysics, and it's so cool. He explains it, you know, down to a level that I understand. So that tells you he can explain it. So check out uh, the science of Star Wars. Ben and I had previously done the science of Star Trek. Uh, We've done a series on Sherlock Holmes. He was one of two guests for last fall's series on Lyme disease. So uh, great uh, resource. Great amount of knowledge, a lot of fun to talk to, and Jay, how much cooler can it be than talking about dueling with lightsabers? I really can't think, even at my advanced age, anything can be cooler than that. So uh, do we have any book releases you could tell us about?
1: We do. CCI has released a new book from our colleague Mike Volkov. It's called Compliance Cultural Revolution. We have a link in the show notes to the CCI website. And, Tom, this is the tough part of the podcast where he asks these trick questions. Um, this book, how much the, would it cost to get it from CCI if people want to read Mike's new book? Uh, Jay, I believe it's free. It's free. So that means they wouldn't have to pull out a Sawbuck, They wouldn't have to get a credit card. They could just link in, follow the show notes, and they could download it for nothing, absolutely nothing at all. I believe you're correct in your analysis. Is that your MBA coming in? It is. So, uh, Tom. Excellent. Uh, let's uh, Thank you so much for playing that uh, question part of the uh, podcast. Uh, Tom Fox, as you may know, is the voice of compliance. If you have any questions, thoughts, or you just want him to give you free stuff, you can write him at tfox tfoxlaw.com. At I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at J-R-O-S-E-N at AffiliatedMonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 292 for the week ending February 25th, 2022, the Russia Invades edition. Uh, We're glad you're able to spend some time with us. Uh, I'm going to break my rule that I said at the beginning of the podcast uh, there's no way our thoughts cannot be with people in uh, in the Ukraine, but um, I'm just hoping there's some miracle out there that can solve this without a uh, substantial loss of life. But we will see you next week when we take a look at this week for this week in FCPA. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll check out my recent podcast series, The Science of Star Wars. If you love Star Wars or even are mildly interested, I have a great five-part series where I speak to uh, academically trained astrophysicist Dr. Ben Lockwin on issues such as traveling through hyperspace, fighting with lightsabers, the Death Star robots and cyborgs, and mechanical prosthetics. It's a lot of fun learn some science and get to talk about star wars please check it out the podcast series is greeting felicitations and it's on the compliance podcast network we hope you will join jay and i next week for another episode of this week in fcpa